Our sermon text today is from the book of 1 John, beginning in chapter 4, verse 7. Again, listen carefully to God's holy word. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love has been perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his Spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son as the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him that he who loves God must love his brother also. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves him who begot also loves him who is begotten of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. The word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, grant us understanding into your word. And with that, a greater understanding of you and your love toward us. Open our ears and our hearts to hear your word and receive it with gladness and humility. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Please be seated. Hopefully I can get this frog cleared out of my throat. throat) 
I'm going to tell about something that I've told before, but I think it bears repeating in relation to this passage. On November 18, 1978, out of what appeared to be a tightly knit community of around 1,000 people, 913 of them died. Most of them committed suicide. Those who didn't were killed by others in the community. Over 200 of those that died were children of various ages. If you're 50 or somewhere in that vicinity or older, you might remember it. It was known as the Jonestown Massacre. Jim Jones and his followers either drank or took injections of cyanide because Jim Jones told them to. Now, there have been several books written about it. One was called Deceived. It was written by Professor Mel White of Fuller Theological Seminary. He asked the questions, how could it happen? And what can we do to keep it from happening again? He interviewed those who escaped from the People's Temple and Jim Jones. He learned a lot about how the cult developed and some of why it ended as it did. One tragic thing that he found out was that many of the people involved with Jonestown had some sort of Christian background. There were people from every branch of the church there, Roman Catholic, Protestant, Eastern Orthodox. Prior to their involvement with the People's Temple, some were even leaders who taught the Bible. How could they all get sucked in to something like this? By all appearances, the People's Temple was a place where they loved one another and they loved the needy and the helpless in society as well. You can read about their history. They really did many things to help those in need. Newspapers wrote about their deeds of mercy. They were recognized for their contributions to society, and they were valued. When the survivors were asked, what went wrong? They answered two things. One, from their experience, the Christian people they knew from different churches didn't seem to love one another. And second, when they looked around, Christian people didn't seem to love the needy outside the church either. So these people were attracted and drawn in, and nearly 1,000 died because they hadn't experienced or seen love in the church. We're familiar with Matthew chapter 22, where Jesus was asked, What is the great commandment? And he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Then also in in John's gospel in chapter 13, Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Based on passages like that, Francis Schaeffer wrote a book called The Mark of the Christian. In it he says, through the centuries, men have displayed many different symbols to show that they are Christians. They've worn marks in the lapels of their coats. They've hung chains about their necks. They've even had special haircuts. 
But there's, there's a much better sign. It's a universal mark that is to last through all the ages of the church till Jesus comes back. He says that mark is a command with a condition. If you obey the command, you wear the mark. But it's possible. It's possible to be a Christian, a disobedient Christian, and not wear the mark. And the mark that he was talking about is love. He called love the mark of the Christian. Now, throughout 1 John, we are exhorted to love one another, and we're told about God's love for us. Today's passage takes many aspects of love and and weaves them together in a very powerful way. And in fact, this is the passage in the Bible where not once but twice it says God is love. In this passage, the word love is used 32 times. That compares with 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter where it's used nine times. Through the first three chapters of 1 John, we're frequently exhorted to love one another. In chapter 2, love is the difference between darkness and light. Verses 10 and 11 say, He who loves his brother abides in the light. And there's no cause for stumbling in him. But he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. In chapter 3, love is one of the differences between the children of God and the children of the devil. In verse 10, it says, In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. The first verse in chapter 3 nearly explodes with this this out-of-the-world love God has for us. It says, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called the children of God. John discusses several aspects of love in those first three chapters. And here in chapter 4, he brings everything together. He connects all the aspects of love into a single, carefully woven argument to convince his readers and us that we must love one another. Look at verses 7 and 8 of chapter 4 there. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. So first, John says, we are to love one another because God is love. And when he says God is love, he doesn't just mean loving is one of the things that God does. No, it says God is love. That means all of God's activity is loving activity. Everything he does is done in love. All of his attributes exist and are exercised in love. Well, somebody might take that and say, okay, well then, I guess love must be the fundamental attribute of God. But you can't reduce God to one attribute like that. He's sovereign. 
He's holy. He's self-existent. He's omnipotent. And there are many, many other attributes described in Scripture. And they're not isolated from one another. We can't think of it as if this time God is doing something that's holy. And then at another time, he's acting in love. And then later, he's being just. Now, according to Scripture, God is love. God is also holy. God is also a consuming fire all at the same time. He doesn't switch between them. They're all who he is. And we also know, according to Scripture, that God is triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. For all eternity, the Father has loved the Son in the Holy Spirit, and the Son has loved the Father in the Spirit. For all eternity, the three persons of the Godhead have loved one another perfectly. So in God's nature, God is love. Christians are people who claim to be born of God and to know God. And John says here, being born of God and knowing God are integral to being a Christian. He says, the God we claim to know and the God who has raised us to new life is love. So, if we're following John's argument, if we've been born of this God, he lives in us. And therefore, we will have and show the nature of this God who has made us new. So we could say it like this. If we claim to know God, we should exhibit the love of the God we claim to know. You see what John is saying here. He's, he puts it in two ways, both positive and negative. Positively, he says, everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. And then negatively, whoever does not love does not know God. Love is a necessary fruit of knowing God. If we know God, love must be there. In fact, it should permeate everything we do. Now, apparently, those whom John was writing this letter to were having trouble loving one another. And John very clearly here wants to shake up those who either don't love or are very selective or limited in their love. He says love is the sign we genuinely know God. If we can't get along with people, if we go from one argument to another, if we hate our wife or our husband or our children, our parents or other Christians or even our enemies... John says we're not born of God. He states it very simply. Now, there is a kind of love that's that's ordinary human love. That's the kind of love that that family members or friends have for one another. And that love binds relationships, especially when things are going relatively well. That kind of ordinary human love exists outside the Christian community. And and the reason it exists outside of the church is because God has made all human beings in his image. He's given all human beings the capacity to love and be loved 
in that ordinary human sense. Jesus made this distinction in the Sermon on the Mount, where he said, if you only love those who love you, you're no better than the people outside the kingdom. People who are outside the redeemed community love those who love them all the time. That kind of love isn't restricted to people who are born of God and know God. But there's another kind of love. It's it's not ordinary human love. It's divine love. It's God's love. It's the love that stoops, sacrifices, serves, looking for no reward. It's the love that took Christ to the cross. It's the love that we have as God's children, even for our enemies. That's divine love. And it's possible only to those who have been born of God. Only to those whom God has given new life. This this kind of love is the hallmark of genuine Christians. Everyone who loves like that with the love of God has been born of God and knows God. And everyone who does not love with a love like that, a love that even reaches out to the enemy, John says that person doesn't know God. No matter how much they claim to know God, no matter how religious they are, John says if they don't love with the love of God, they don't know him. And they've not been born of him. That's, it's a very sobering statement. But again, John states it very clearly. So that's the first aspect of love that John brings out in this passage. We must love one another because God is love. Love is who God is and love therefore comes from him. And if we claim to know him and have been born of him, then he is in us, and we will love one another. But second, there, there's another aspect of love here in verses 9 through 11. It says, In this, the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So, we must love one another because God has loved us in Christ. John turns from who God is in his being, God is love, to what God has done in history. God has loved us, and he demonstrated that love to us in Christ. And then, also in verses 9 and 10 there, he tells us that God sent his Son in order that he might be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation is a big word that nobody normally uses. It simply means a sacrifice that bears the wrath of God against us, against our sin. And by fully taking that wrath, he turns that wrath into loving favor. Jesus was the sacrifice that received God's wrath and fully satisfied it. And he turned that wrath 
into loving favor. Because of that, God now loves you just like he loves Jesus. That's what Jesus did for you. And John also tells us the cost for God to love us like that was tremendous. Because in sending and giving his only son, God the Son, who was, he was eternally in loving communion with the Father. He took our nature upon himself and then he took our sin and our judgment upon himself. And he did that all in God-forsaken darkness. That loving communion was broken. It's because he died that we live. It's because he bore our sin that God has propitiated his own wrath against us and turned it into loving favor. Some people will will think with that idea of propitiation, well then, that's Jesus coming between us and the Father. So that Jesus propitiated a reluctant, judgmental God who who wasn't willing to do it himself. But that's that's not it at all. In fact, it's, it's the opposite of that. It's the Father in his own love who has propitiated his own wrath by sending and giving us his own Son who willingly died for us. So it's God the Father in Christ propitiating his own wrath by his own love. that That's the mystery of the atonement. It's the mystery that God loved us enough to bear our sin and guilt and judgment in his own son. And, th- and that's a cost so great we, we can't even comprehend it. And John says, if, if God loved you like that, in the midst of all of your sin against him, and he also loved your neighbor in the midst of all of his sin, against God, there's only one conclusion. You don't have any excuse. If God loved you both that way, you must love one another. So in this argument about love that John is giving, he says, first, God in his very being is love. If you're born of him and know him, he has given you his love. And you will love others. And then second, God has demonstrated this love by sending his only begotten son to propitiate his own wrath toward us. No greater act of love could be shown. And and John says, if God has loved each and every one of you in that way, you have to love each and every one as well. So the next part of his argument, the third part, is in verse 12. At first glance, it seems like it it doesn't relate. It, It says, no one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love has been perfected in us. How does that relate? It seems like John has suddenly change direction, where he's inserted this this statement about not seeing God into a logical argument about love. Where's he going? Well, we do know no one has ever seen God. God is invisible. All that people have ever seen of God is his glory. 
the outward shining of his inward being, but God's inward being is invisible. And God's invisibility really kind of creates some problems for us at times. For instance, think about the Jews in the Old Testament. They were surrounded by nations that had visible gods. They had idols. Those idols had eyes and ears and mouths and hands and feet. But the Jews, they worshipped an invisible God. So you can you can hear the taunts of the Gentiles in places like Psalm 115. It says, why should the Gentiles say, so where is your God? You can hear the taunts. You say you worship God? Where is he? He's nowhere to be found. Come over here to our temples and see our gods. So God's invisibility, at times it could be a problem for the Jews. Well, we have a similar problem today. In our scientific culture, we're taught to use the empirical method to study the world. We're supposed to study and test things with our five senses. So people say, well, how can I believe in God? I can't see him, can't hear him, can't touch him. How can I believe in a God who's invisible and intangible? How's God dealt with that issue? Well, in John's Gospel, chapter 1 and verse 18, it begins with these very same words. No one has seen God at any time. But it continues differently. It says, The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. How did He declare Him? Well, a few verses earlier, in verse 14, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory as of the only begotten of the Father. The second person of the Trinity became a human being. So Jesus was able to show us God. He said, he who has seen me has seen the Father. In Colossians, Paul says, Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. So that's that's great. The invisible God made himself visible in Christ. But the time that Jesus was here on earth was... 2,000 years ago. He died, he rose again, and then he ascended to heaven. We can't see him anymore. Even the original audience of John's letter would have said, we can't see him now. So what, what then? God's invisible again. Well, in the beginning of this book of First John, they began in chapter 1 by saying that What we have seen and heard and our hands have handled, we declare to you. In other words, the apostles had seen and heard and touched Jesus, the image of the invisible God. And they were making him known. But they've all died. They're not around anymore either. Now, we do have their words. The words inspired by God here in the Bible. That's our sure revelation of God. But John doesn't stop there. He takes it one step further. Here in verse 12, John 
begins the same way as he did in his gospel, but he ends the thought differently. In his gospel, he said, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten son who is in the bosom of the father, he has declared him. But here he says, no one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us. And his love has been perfected in us. He says, God makes himself visible in the Christian community. But there is an if. If it's a community where love is real and it's shown. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Now, he's not saying there that we always show perfect love. Now, the word perfected there means completed. It's saying that love is completed when it's made visible in, through, and by us as a community of God's people. This is one of the verses that we often overlook when we're talking about evangelism. And it's the same thing that Francis Schaeffer was talking about in his book, The Mark of the Christian. We can't preach the gospel of the love of God in Christ if we don't embody his love in our church community. This verse is crucial to the evangelization of the world. People aren't going to believe in our invisible God, even the one who made himself visible in Christ, if he's not made visible in us today. We can't preach the gospel with any degree of credibility or integrity if we don't look like what we're talking about. That gets back to the People's Temple and Jim Jones. Gene Mills was one of the men who escaped. He said, I was so turned off in every church I went to because nobody cared. In the People's Temple in San Francisco, however, everyone seemed so caring and loving. They hugged us. They made us welcome. They said they wanted us to come back. Another person who did not escape was Tim Stone. He was a lawyer, and he became the second most powerful person in the People's Temple. His wife, Grace, was able to escape, And she told why he got involved. Tim said, I went to church until I was 18 years old. And nobody ever befriended me. But at the People's Temple, a cult, they did. Now, it doesn't say in the book, but why do you suppose no one befriended him? Maybe he wasn't cool enough. Maybe he didn't fit in socially. Was he extremely overweight? Or did he dress in a strange way? Was his hair weird? Or did everyone else already have their circle of friends and they just didn't want to let anyone else in? We don't know. But there was something that either either put people off or something that kept them from making the effort to ask him in. And what we do know is that the churches where he went didn't make God's nature, God's love, 
known to him. Do you ever let that happen here? Can you think of anyone that you've shunned? Or maybe you've even mocked? Because they didn't fit the way you thought they should be. God's love is completed in us when it embraces those around us. When, in whatever way it's appropriate, it's made visible. Along with his holiness, his righteousness, his goodness, and all of his other attributes, God's love should be seen in all that we do. So first, God in his nature is love. If we're born of God, his love will be in us and we will love as well. And second, God clearly demonstrated his love by by sending his own son to bear his wrath and die for us. He showed us what love really is. And third, God makes himself visible through his people as they love one another. God gives people outside the church the right to say, Jesus isn't his son if we don't love one another. Now, there is a lot more in this passage. But those those three strands of John's argument are weighty enough. If love is this crucial, if God is love and we as Christians, as the church is God's covenant community must love one another with, with this true divine love. And we have to ask as we look out, has it been happening? Is it happening in the church today? If we look around, we know there are hundreds or even thousands of denominations that are evidence against the unity you would expect to see with that kind of love. So there's, there's all of that going on in the churches. Then at the same time, there's a growing trend of loneliness, especially in Western countries. An article in the, the BBC News that described the problem of loneliness in England. It says, population is greater than ever, but ironically, so is isolation. And it listed several reasons for the loneliness. Divorce is rampant. People spend their time devoted to work. Talking to and getting to know one another face-to-face has been replaced by social media. Families are smaller. Extended families don't live near one another that much anymore. A recent U.S. Census report showed that 27% of U.S. households were one person living alone. That's almost a third. The BBC article suggested the solution to this. The solution is clubs or support groups. It did actually mention that the church might help, and and going to church should help. But we've already seen and heard about the People's Temple as an example of churched people who joined a cult because of a lack of love in the church. Mother Teresa is someone who is who's known for her ministry with extreme poverty around the world. She wrote a book called Simple Path. And 
in it, she said, the greatest disease in the West today isn't tuberculosis or leprosy, things like that. No, it's, it's being unwanted, unloved, and uncared for. We can cure physical diseases with medicine, but the cure for loneliness, despair, and hopelessness is love. There are many in the world who are dying for a piece of bread, but there are many more dying for a little love. The poverty in the West is a different kind of poverty. It's not only a poverty of loneliness, but also of spirituality. There's a hunger for love as there is a hunger for God. Interesting. God makes himself visible through the love of his people, and that's missing. If God is love, In his inner being. If for all eternity, the three persons of the Trinity have existed in perfect, loving communion, then it it only makes sense, doesn't it, that the world God created, when functioning as it should, would have love intertwined and running through everything. But it's not. Why is that? that? That would have been the way it was in the garden initially, right? But when Adam sinned, he betrayed God's love toward him. And when Adam stood by and watched Eve eat of the fruit that she wasn't supposed to eat, he violated the love between him and his wife. For the first time, they both hid from God in fear. Now verse 18 in chapter 4 says, Love casts out fear. But when, when love is betrayed through sin, fear enters in, and then fear casts out love. Peter Lightheart, as many of you know him, and in his con- commentary on this passage, he says, even though love should be the greatest characteristic of the church instead of fear, it's not. He says you can see that by reading the next piece of direct mail you get, from Christian advocacy groups, or analyze the rhetoric of your favorite Christian political figure or internet pundit, or think of the conspiracy mongering that gets mixed up with Christianity in many circles. He asks, how many dozens of Christian ministries continue to exist only because of the fear they are able to generate? Jesus didn't say you can tell a Christian by his fear. In his love, God sent Jesus, who in his love died for us. Jesus conquered sin and the fear that results from it. And when we live out that love, we demonstrate to the world what God is really like. So what's the conclusion? John uses many reasons here to show that we absolutely must love one another. That kind of obviously, I think, would start in our family, those we're with the most. Ask yourself, would those in your family say that you demonstrate the love of God to them? Really stop and think about that. It also has to happen here in the church. If someone disagrees with you, how do you treat them? 
If you hear a rumor about someone and you listen to it, you're participating in gossip. Instead, tell the person to stop and go show love to the one being rumored about. We could go on and on. There's no end to the ways to demonstrate love because there are so many things you can do and there are people everywhere. This kind of love also needs to extend somehow even to our enemies. Now that's not the way of the world. But chapter 5 verse 4, as we read, says, For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. We have to believe God. He's the one who is love and the one who intertwined love in all he made, including us. We have to trust him and by faith live the way he says to live. How do we do that? Well, one very simple way is is to pray. Pray for God to change you so that you really do love your neighbor. Of course, if you love your neighbor, it will be visible. Pray for God to work on your character so that your anger turns into patience and kindness. So that your gossip turns into encouragement and building others up. So that your self-centeredness turns into helping others with their needs, and helping them to know and understand who God is. Pray for those things. The love as shown by Christ is a love of sacrifice and service. So look for how how can you imitate that? How can you serve others, especially those who can't serve you back? Look around here even on Sundays. And don't just instantly go talk to your friends, but look around to find those who are on their own. Go eat with them. Ask them questions. Find out what's going on in their lives. When we have visitors, sit with them and eat with them. Find out about them. Show other people you're glad they're here. Those are just basic things, but they're ways in which God loves through you. Today is the Sunday after Epiphany. Epiphany is the time when the church remembers the Magi, who were guided by the star to Jesus. So as they knelt there and gave gifts to Jesus, that was the first time Jesus was revealed to the Gentiles. That's what Epiphany is about. Well, the way he is revealed now is through us as we love one another. God in his being is love. We are God's children, and he has made us new in Christ. He has given us his spirit, so we too now have the love of God. We need to wear that mark of the Christian gladly and visibly, and you make it visible when you demonstrate God's love for those around you especially when you need to sacrifice to show that love, and even more so when you do it to someone who's outside of your normal circle of friends. Beloved, let us 
love one another. For love is of God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God. For God is love. Let's pray. Father, you have loved us to a depth that is beyond our understanding. And you continue to love us with that same love day after day. Grant us, we pray, love and maturity in you so that we do love one another, both those here as well as the saints around the world and even our enemies. Make that love visible so that the world does know that we are Christ's disciples and you are exalted and glorified in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.